Well, several years ago, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel reported a burglary at the home of Nathan Radlick. The owner was out visiting friends. When he returned, his television, his electronics, even his valuables had all been ignored. Things you would have thought the burglars would have taken had been ignored. All that was stolen was a cardboard box filled with white powder. The thieves thought they had scored some cocaine. But it wasn't coke in the box. It was Nathan's sister, Gertrude. The box held her cremated remains. Here's a really funny thought. Imagine those thieves sitting around trying to get high, snorting old Gertrude. Imagine. If ever there was proof that drugs are a dead end, this is it. And yet the mistake the thieves made that day helps to describe the mistake that the Jews were making that day. The day that they arrested Stephen. They were trying to get high on ashes, on the remnants of what was dead. They were putting their trust in the features of Judaism, the temple and the traditions and the trappings. These Jews, they had relied on a religion that looked like the real thing. But in reality, it was merely ashes and death. You see, Jesus had fulfilled the Jewish law. The rules and rituals of Judaism had become obsolete. Christianity was God's new way. The law of God had exposed their failures. But the Spirit of God had conveyed forgiveness and provided power for victory. The law condemned, but grace saved. And yet these Jews were the keepers of the law, and they were opponents of grace. The Jews were snorting old Gertie, whereas Stephen was high on the life of God's Spirit and on God's wonderful grace. His life was full of joy and power and peace and hope. And the last verse of chapter 6 says that he even had a glow about him. Stephen radiated God's glory. Stephen will tell the Jewish hierarchy that God is not confined to a temple. Neither is he limited by the law of Moses. Stephen's message is that God is the author of newness. He's so creative that no two snowflakes are identical. And God has created an entirely new way for people to relate to him through faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin. At the end of chapter 6, the Jews had made several false accusations against Stephen. They had accused him of blasphemy against the temple and against the law. Stephen didn't respect either the temple or the law. He never discredited their role in God's plan. But through Christ, God was doing a new work. Christ had transcended both the law and the temple. This is what his enemies didn't get. And this is the source of the high priest's question to Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? Now a little background on Stephen. Remember he started out as a deacon. He was a table waiter. In Acts chapter 6, God promoted him to a miracle worker. Now in Acts chapter 7, he's an engaging theologian. At each stage of service, Stephen was faithful. And God often rewards faithful service with broader service. That's what happened with Stephen. You know, Paul may have been thinking of Stephen when he said in 1 Timothy 3 verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith. Stephen was a deacon turned evangelist. And he follows the pattern of Peter. He uses this inquisition as an opportunity to trumpet the gospel. And his sermon is a masterpiece, as you'll soon see. What Stephen does is he surveys Jewish history to show how God was always up to something new. And yet, each new initiative was met by resistance from the Jews. You could call Stephen's sermon a panoramic view of Jewish stubbornness. Stephen begins in verse 2. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, 
Get out of our country, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. God spoke to Abraham while he was still in a pagan country. The Mesopotamians, they worshiped the moon goddess, which reminds me, you know, if they found insects on the moon, you know what they'd be called, don't you? Lunatics. Yeah. Well, Abraham was from this pagan country. They, they worshipped the moon goddess. And Stephen, Stephen's point is that God went into this pagan land and, and he picked out a man who would father his people. This man's name was Abraham. In other words, God was doing a new thing. God always does fresh works. He always does new things. He told Abraham to move and move he did. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. Did you know Abraham died with only a promise? He was a pilgrim from the time that God called him to the time God called him home. Abraham never really possessed the land that he had been promised. He was only given a promise. And he was always on the move. And this is true of every life that's lived in Christ. You know, the one constant in our lives is change. Did you know that? We're all on a spiritual pilgrimage. God is always doing new things in our life. He wants us to avoid stagnancy. This is why he keeps us in transition. Transition is a fact of life. God is always wanting to do new things in our lives. To the contrary, the Jews of Stephen's day were stuck in a 1,500-year rut. Resistance to the changes that God had in mind had created a spiritual deadness in the hearts of the Jews. The believers in Jesus were alive. They were full of joy and power of the Holy Spirit. These Christians were fanatics. These Jews, they were just static. Verse 6. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Stephen's point is that God is going to have to uproot the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers of Israel. The growth of their faith had stalled out in the promised land. God was going to force them down to Egypt so that they would learn to trust Him and lean on Him. A new work, again, had to take place. And with the new work came a new sign. Then He gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now, by the time of, of Stephen, in the first century A.D., circumcision was common. It was the unquestioned mark of God's covenant with Israel. All Hebrew males carried this reminder in their person. But when circumcision was first instituted on an adult, Abraham, ouch, even what the Jews viewed as an ancient tradition was at one time a new deal. Again, Stephen's point is that God was always doing a new thing. And the patriarchs, being envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Stephen is recounting the means now by which God moved Israel to Egypt. It started with an act of their own stubbornness. They got jealous of young Joseph. And, of course, the coat that he wore. You remember the coat of many colors. It was a show of favoritism that his father had bestowed on him but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh king of Egypt and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance one of the most fascinating studies you'll ever undertake uh, in the Old Testament is to list the different ways that, Jesus, that Joseph was a type of Jesus Christ. Really amazing study. 
The similarities are striking. Both were rejected by their brothers. Both were thrown into a pit or a grave and left for dead. Both were resurrected and ascended to the right hand of their respective kings. God judged the people for the rejection of both Joseph and Jesus with a famine. You know, during the days of Joseph, there was famine in the land of Palestine. After the Jews rejected Jesus, the bread of life, did you know there also was a famine in the land? Later, we'll find Paul trying to gather relief for the church in Jerusalem who was suffering from this famine. Verse 12 tells us, But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Notice this. The brothers didn't recognize Joseph the first time he met with them. It was at his second appearance to them that their eyes were open. And likewise, the Jews failed to recognize Jesus at his first coming. But it's when he comes again, it's at his second coming, that they'll know him and they'll recognize him and they'll repent of their sin and they'll embrace him as their Messiah. Well, then Joseph sent and he called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Did you know the only land that Abraham actually owned in Canaan was a burial plot? was this burial site that he bought from from Hamor. Remember, Abraham was a wanderer. He died with nothing but a promise. He was always moving, just as you and I are always moving through this life. Our home is not in this world. Our home is beyond this world. Our home is heaven. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live. The Egyptian dynasty that Joseph had influenced remained sympathetic with the Hebrews, but it was ousted shortly after Joseph died, and the succeeding dynasty was brutal toward the Hebrews. They feared Israel's vast numbers. And so the Pharaoh ordered a mass genocide of thousands of Hebrew males, Hebrew infants, And so God did a new work. Verse 20, God's always doing a new work, isn't he? At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Exodus 3 recounts how Moses' faithful mom, you remember her name? Jochebed, that was her name. She floated her baby boy down the Nile River in a wicker basket. A little miniature ark stuck in the reeds where it was retrieved by Pharaoh's daughter who then took him home and raised him as her own son. It was all orchestrated by God's overarching providence. Once again, God was at work in the affairs of his people. Verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It's ironic that the Pharaoh that killed the Hebrew babies financed Moses' education. Even down to the room and board. He raised Moses in his own court. God was at work doing a new thing. And Moses was mighty in words and deeds, Stephen tells us. You know, the Jewish historian Josephus provides us some extra-biblical insights into Moses' upbringing in Egypt. Josephus wrote that while growing up, Moses was such a beautiful child and he had such natural endowments that people would actually go out of their way to walk by the nursery just to behold little baby Moses. Josephus notes that as a young man growing up, Moses, a prince of Egypt, led a regiment of the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians and won a tremendous victory. You know, later when God calls Moses at the burning bush to be his spokesman, Moses balks. And you remember his excuse? Remember what his excuse was? Moses complained, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent 
I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, apparently, that was an excuse. That was not true. Apparently, Moses was selling himself short. Why? Because here Stephen says that Moses was mighty in words. He was mighty in words and in deeds. Moses was a powerful, natural speaker. It wasn't communication skills that he lacked. It was confidence. Growing up in Egypt, Moses was popular, and he was privileged and talented and intelligent and articulate and courageous. He was a tremendous young man, literally on top of the world until now, when he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. What would you think? Maybe call it a midlife crisis? 40 years old, needed to find himself, had to go back, trace his roots. Somehow he had learned that he was a Hebrew. And he wanted to understand his roots and his origins and his heritage. You know, it's been said, it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know who you are. Moses wanted to find himself, and so he retraced his roots. This is why it is so vital for you and I as believers to understand who we are in Christ. You know, if you know you're a Christian, if you believe you're a Christian, you'll act like a Christian. It's important that we know who we are. What we do comes from who we are. Well, as Moses walked among the Hebrews, he saw one of them suffer a wrong. And he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. It was just an instinctive reaction on Moses' part. He was defending an innocent Hebrew against the cruelty of an Egyptian taskmaster. He killed the Egyptian. And Moses thought the Hebrews were going to view him now as a hero. Wow, here's our deliverer. Verse 25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses had read it all wrong. In fact, the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Oh, my. The news had already gotten out, already leaked, already gotten around camp. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. You know, Moses somehow sensed God's call to deliver his people from slavery. But rather than wait on God's timing and on God's methods, he took matters into his own hands. And Moses' botched efforts ended in disaster. He had to flee Egypt. He started a new life with a new wife on the outskirts of Midian. Again, it's interesting that both Joseph and Moses, after being rejected by their own brothers, what did they do? They moved to a foreign land. To do what? To take for themselves a Gentile bride so that they could have a family and then later return a second time to their people Israel. Isn't that interesting? Well, I hope you see that both plights, the plights of both men, beautifully parallel the life of Jesus. This is what he did too. After Jesus was rejected by the Jews, he too moved to a foreign land. He ascended into heaven. And he has taken a Gentile bride. Who is that? The church, you and I. He's had many sons and daughters. Like Moses and Joseph, Jesus too will also return a second time to his brothers. And it's then that they'll receive him as their Messiah. You know, Stephen is saying that God's ways change, but they also stay the same. Verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, notice another 40 years. It was 40 years when he left Egypt, now another 40 years in the desert. After 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush, a bush that burned but was not consumed, Exodus tells us in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. You know, Moses' life breaks down into three 40-year periods. First, 40 years in the court of Pharaoh. Second, 40 years on the backside of the desert. And then third, he lived 40 years leaving the nation of Israel. 
It took God 80 years, though, of his 120-year life to prepare Moses for the mission that he had in mind. You know, it takes time to mold and mature a Moses. So why are you so impatient? (laughs) Oftentimes, we get too eager. We run out ahead of God rather than learn our lessons and wait for God's timing. God didn't start using Moses until he was 80 years old. That means it's never too late for us. It was D.L. Moody who once said, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody, and 40 years as Israel's leader showing what God can do with a somebody who knows he's a nobody. Well said. God had to humble a haughty Moses. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, the burning bush. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And I wish I could do that voice as well as they did it in the Ten Commandments. You remember that? When Charlton Heston knelt down before the bush and I am the God of your fathers. I don't know. There's not enough reverb to get my voice to do what it did in that movie. It was just great. Now notice verse 30. Who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. And yet the angel of the Lord identified himself how in verse 31? What did he say? I am the God of of your fathers. All right? Notice the angel of the Lord appears and speaks to Moses from the burning bush, but the angel of the Lord identifies himself as God. In fact, that's how Moses treats him. Did you know the word angel translated literally means messenger? That's all it means, simply messenger. And I believe more often than not, when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This was a messenger of God, and yet he identifies himself as God. I think it was Jesus who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Stephen implies that it was actually the Lord who spoke, our Lord Jesus, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. But but again, here's the point. Notice what he says next. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Again, God was working in a new and an unexpected way. In fact, his deliverer was the very person that the Hebrews rejected. And the mistake they made with Moses, they're now repeating with Jesus. This is what Stephen is trying to say to them. Verse 36, he brought them out. Who is he here? Who is the he here? Stephen is speaking of the angel of the Lord. It was the angel of the Lord who brought them out. Look again, back at verse 35. Moses was sent by the hand of the angel in the bush. You've heard the old saying, a Moses in the hand is worthless without an angel in the bush. Well, you hadn't heard that old saying, but that's the way Stephen would have said it. Moses was empowered by whose hand? By the hand of the angel of the Lord. That was who empowered Moses. It was the power of Jesus who worked through Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt. And then he says, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years, Jesus was the source of Moses' miracles. Jesus empowered the plagues. He parted the sea. He brought the manna. Ironically, these traditional Jews that Stephen is addressing were rejecting the same Jesus who had been so instrumental in the development of their history. 
Again, Stephen points to Jesus in verse 37. He says, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And he quotes here from Deuteronomy 18. The prophet like me that Moses predicted was none other than Jesus. This is he, meaning Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. The revelation God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai came from Jesus and yet the Jews that rejected him then are rejecting him now. That's Stephen's message. And in their hearts, once again, God does new things, but how did the Jews respond? With stubbornness, with resistance. And here's the ultimate example. He says, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, now you remember the ten plagues that God worked to pry loose the grip of Pharaoh on the neck of his people Israel. Those ten plagues were direct assaults against the idols of Egypt. Why did God turn the water of the Nile into blood? Because the uh, Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They thought it was the bloodstream of Osiris, the god that they worshipped. That's why he turned it into blood. He made mockery of of their worship. They worshipped the frogs. That's why they had a plague of frogs. They worshipped the sun. That's why he blacked out the sun. Each one of those ten plagues was a direct assault against a God that the Egyptians worshipped. God proved his superiority over the Egyptians through those plagues. Now here it, it is a stunning example of stubbornness that the Hebrews turned so quickly to worship the gods that their God had so thoroughly defeated All it took was just a 40-day absence. Moses up on the mountaintop for the Hebrews to turn to idols. It was the ultimate example of stubbornness. They turned to Moses' brother Aaron and they asked him to forge an idol. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. This is an insight Stephen provides us that we don't read about in the law of Moses. Not only did Israel bow to the golden calf, idolatry, but they also worshiped the host of heaven, the stars, the zodiac. They delved into the evil, the forbidden practice of astrology. Idolatry and astrology. They looked to the creation for guidance rather than to the creator. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rimphon, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Now, Molech was the god of the Moabites. They worshipped him too. It seems so barbaric to us today. But Moabite parents would sacrifice their babies to Molech to appease his anger and to try to coax from him a successful harvest. The image of Molech was hollowed out, and so they would stoke it with logs, and they would set it on fire until it became a a kind of a red-hot, glowing, uh, molten incinerator. And then they would lay their babies into his hand. And he would burn, the babies would burn and be sacrificed there to Molech. The priests would all scream in order to drown out the cries of the babies. You know, we shudder at that. We hear that and we shudder at the depravity and the brutality and the callousness that the ancient peoples were capable of producing. And yet we need to stop and think a moment. For modern society can stoop to the same kind of barbaric practices. Sadly, parents today sacrifice their babies through abortion on the altar of convenience or career or so-called choice. 
Today, Molech worship is still around. It just goes by names like a woman's rights or family planning. And notice Stephen is now speeding up his survey of Hebrew history. Israel's idolatry lingered for nearly a thousand years until God finally turned his people over to the world's most notorious idolaters, the Babylonians. Stephen notes how that they were carried away, Israel was carried away to Babylon. The conquest of Jerusalem occurred in 586 B.C. Jews were deported back to the birthplace of idolatry, the land of Babel. There they lived in pagan exile for 70 years. And yet it's interesting, this was the vaccination that cured Israel of its idolatry. For in Babylon, they developed such an abhorrence for idols that they never followed them again. In fact, when they came back to the land, it wasn't idolatry that was their problem. It was hypocrisy. That's the climate that, that Jesus ministered in and that now Stephen is speaking to there in the first century. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Now remember again, Stephen's saying, God's always doing a new thing. Now he talks about the tabernacle, how God... Uh, commanded Moses to build the tabernacle. And he built it as a model of what he had seen. God had given him a glimpse of heaven. And the tabernacle is nothing but a small-scale uh, replica of God's throne in heaven. And so Moses built the tabernacle. But again, how did the Jews respond at each turn to God's new initiatives? They were stubborn. They were resistant. Boy, you know, God wants to do a new thing in our lives. And yet, how often are we resistant to change? How often are we stubborn and are we inflexible and are we unwilling to adapt to the changes God wants to work in our lives? Well, here he talks about the tabernacle. Remember, Stephen was being accused of blaspheming against the temple. Well, the tabernacle was just the temple's predecessor. To speak evil against either was tantamount to blasphemy against God. The Jews were so proud of the tabernacle and then later the temple. They thought that the temple was a sign of God's blessing. As long as the temple stood, Israel was assured of God's favor. But Stephen is about to show the Jews that they had made a wrong assumption. The tabernacle stood until David, Stephen says. But then God did a new thing, verse 46. David inquired about a temple who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. David brought up the subject. Solomon was the one that completed the vision and built the temple. However, notice what Stephen says. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. Here he quotes Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You see, the Jews trusted in their temple, but Stephen contends that the God of Israel can never be confined to a temple. God is far bigger than any temple. God made the universe. The earth is just what? His footstool. It's where he props up his feet when he kicks back on the couch. God will continue his work in the world with or without a temple. Be careful that you don't try to confine God to a temple or put God in a box. You know, religious people like to limit God's domain to the four walls of the church. How ridiculous. God is Lord over the workplace, in the ballpark, in the home life, in the political arena, not just the church. God refuses any limitations. Never try to tell God what he can and cannot do or where he can and cannot go. Too many Christians forget that God is bigger than our programs and our traditions and our temples. 
God does as he pleases, where and when and how he pleases. Well, Stephen turns up the heat on his listeners in verse 51. He says to his accusers, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Wow. Gets in their face a bit. You know, Jews were the circumcised. Gentiles were the uncircumcised. But notice here, Stephen calls these Jews uncircumcised in heart and ears. They were insensitive. They were dull of hearing toward God. He calls them stiff-necked, which means unbending or inflexible. They were resistant to the Holy Spirit. Let's not be stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Let's be open and sensitive and flexible and willing to adapt and walk in the Spirit and, and adjust our lives to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Wow. You know, the answer was none. Every time God raised up a man to do a new thing, the nation tried to put him down. They were so stubborn. Once they, they even tried to stone Moses. They sought to murder Jeremiah and on several occasions threw him into prison. They killed the prophet Zechariah right there in the temple. After sticking Isaiah in a tree trunk, they sawed him in half. And yet after they were gone, they then revered these wonderful men of God. They were a nation of hypocrites. And Stephen lets them have it with both barrels. He says, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. This was a term for the Messiah. They killed the prophets who spoke of Jesus. And now you have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The angel of the Lord had led them. It was through his hand that miracles had been done. We're told in other places that the angels gave to Israel the law of Moses. They had angelic help at every step. The Jews knew the truth. They were just too stubborn to obey it. And how does the crowd, how did the crowd respond to Stephen this day? Notice verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They were convicted. You bet they were. They were cut straight to the heart. They knew he was right. But they were too stubborn and too stiff-necked. And so what did they do? They snarled at him. They became pit bulls in clerical robes. They just snarled right at him. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Suddenly for Stephen, the heavens peel back. Stephen peers into the eternal realm. He views the throne of God and it is amazing what he sees. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is interesting. In Mark 16, verse 19, Mark is commenting on Jesus' ascension into heaven. And this is what Mark says. After the Lord had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven, notice, and He sat down... At the right hand of God. See that? He sat down. Every time we read of Jesus' heavenly high priestly ministry, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, except here. And the assumption here is that Jesus got so excited about the faith and the bravery and the courage and the faithfulness of his man Stephen, that what happened? He rose to his feet in order to welcome Stephen home. Stephen saw the Son of Man standing by the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus got so excited, he stood up for Stephen. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord, like a defensive line rushing the passer. They just rushed him. 
And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him with real rocks, by the way. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Apparently, this Saul had been the ringleader of the whole episode. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? His final words, Lord, I commit to you my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Remember what Jesus said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He didn't die. His spirit went to heaven. His body just fell asleep to one day be resurrected again. It's interesting. In Stephen's final hour, he quoted Jesus in his final hour. Apparently, Stephen was Christ-like to the very end. What a witness he was for Jesus Christ. It's been said, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seeds of the church. And that's proven true over and over again. Here's Stephen's death caused a young rabbi to consider Christ. Chapter 8. Now that's Saul. Rabbi Saul was consenting to his death. This was the Saul who will later be converted to Christ on the road to Damascus and who will change his name to Paul. Isn't it interesting? Stephen's Jewish executioner became Christianity's apostle to the Gentiles. This is, this is no doubt, it's no doubt that Paul was part of Stephen's legacy. Stephen's testimony had rattled the, the rabbi Saul. I'm sure that the glow on his face, his, his shout, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I'm sure that haunted Saul. Can you imagine trying to go to sleep at night? Saul waking up with, with visions of Stephen in his mind, the glory of God radiating from his foot. How could he deny that witness? How could he deny that Jesus hadn't changed Stephen's life, that he wasn't living and alive and a part of Stephen's life? Stephen's testimony haunted Saul. There's no doubt about it. He probably mulled over his words over and over again how throughout history God had tried to be doing a new thing. He was doing a new work, and yet the Jews were resistant to him. And, and I'm sure he, it was forced him to think, am I falling into the same trap? Is God doing a new thing in the world through Christianity, and am I resisting it? Slowly, I'm sure God used Stephen's testimony to soften Saul's heart. We're told Saul consented to Stephen's death. The word consenting can be translated voting. It implies that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, which condemned Stephen to death. You know, we know that marriage was one of the requirements of being a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So at the time, Paul apparently was married and had children. And this is jumping ahead a bit, but when we get over to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, Paul is going to talk about how he wished that everyone could be single as he was, which leads you to think what happened to his wife. Well, most scholars feel that Paul was abandoned by his wife, probably his kids too. You know, even today when a Jew converts to Christianity, it's still common for them to be renounced by their families. Did you know that? Paul paid a steep price for following Jesus Christ and committing his life to the Lord. Well, verse 1 here of chapter 8 continues, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, now you see, thousands of believers were at this point worshiping together there in Jerusalem, and the fellowship was so sweet. The miracles were mighty. The growth was explosive. The grace was attractive. The Spirit's power was tangible and thrilling. There was high energy and there was great harmony. I'm telling you, the church of Jerusalem was a happening church. 
And yet these believers were so buzzed about what God was doing inside their church that they had forgotten about what Jesus wanted to do outside of their church. They were neglecting Jesus' parting commands. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 said, Jesus said, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These disciples, they were shaking up Jerusalem. But what about the rest of Judea? And what about up the road there in Samaria? Let alone the ends of the earth. Enough with the fellowship. It's time to ship out. You see, the church had become a holy huddle. It was time to shout break and run the play. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, God said go. Now in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, he shoves the infant church out of the nest and forces her to fly. God allows a little persecution to get some houses on the market and to move out a few reluctant missionaries. You know, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit cultivated fellowship within the church. But now the Spirit breaks up the fellowship and focuses the church on evangelism. Fellowship is important. But we're going to spend all eternity with each other, guys. We've only got a few short hours left to try to win a fallen world to Jesus. Notice verse 2. And devout men, they carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul had gnashed his teeth, but he had also been cut to the heart. You see, Saul couldn't shake Stephen's witness, so he decided to strike out against it. Saul was a proud, stubborn Jew who couldn't believe that God was doing a new work in the world. How could a carpenter from Nazareth eclipse the prized traditions of Judaism? Why would the Spirit of God make his home the hearts of Galilean fishermen instead of the glorious temple in Jerusalem? These were the questions he was asking. Saul was stiff-necked. You remember his teacher Gamaliel had said, that this new movement was not of, if this new movement was of God, it was not going to go away. And if it was not of God, it would go away. That's what he had said. Problem though, in Saul, Saul is, from his perspective, this thing wasn't going away. It was multiplying. And Saul couldn't stand it. And so he decides to help make it go away. And he mounts this ferocious attack against the church. We're told Saul made havoc of the church. The Greek word translated havoc is a verb that describes a wild animal mangling its prey. This was Saul. He went berserk with hatred toward the Christians. He turned into a rabid dog. He spent every waking moment plotting the extermination of Christianity. It's going to make his conversion to Christ that much more dramatic well therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word I'm sure when the persecution intensified these believers wondered why but God had a reason he had lit a fire under them in order to move them out get them going again get them preaching the gospel then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them now, miracles will occur in Samaria. We'll see that next week. But what came first was Christ-centered preaching. And get the order down. This is always the first wave of a spiritual awakening, the preaching of God's Word. Mark 16 tells us that where the gospel is preached, signs will follow. Miracles will occur, but it's the preaching that comes first. And notice, too, Here's another faithful deacon taking on bigger responsibilities. Like Stephen, Philip goes from table waiter to now missionary and evangelist. And he heads to Samaria. Jesus had said, going to all Judea and Samaria. That was the next place. That's where Philip heads. This was a place that Jesus had paved the way. You remember it was here in Samaria that Jesus had spoken to the woman at the well. You remember the story in John chapter 4? And he had promised her living water. Afterwards, 
We're told in the Gospels that he stayed two days there in Samaria. John 4 verse 39 says, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Jesus was known in Samaria. But this was now new territory for the church. You know, the Samaritan people, they were not considered Jewish. They were interracial. They were part Assyrian, part Jewish. Judaism had been for Jews, but now everyone is about to realize that Christianity is not just for Jews, it's for all mankind, Samaritans included. The Samaritans were the first cross-cultural mission field for Christianity. Verse 6, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. The miracles that had been seen in the ministry of Jesus and in the church of Jerusalem were now happening here in Samaria. God was doing a new work. Once again, God doing a new thing among a new group of people. Notice too, Philip was not an apostle. He was just a deacon. But he worked miracles. Don't ever think that God's power is reserved to just a few special people. Who knows how God might want to use you. And then verse 8 records the result. And there was great joy in that city. I'm sure there was. There's always great joy where the Word of God and the Spirit of God combined to produce the work of God. I've heard it said, A church with the Spirit, without the Word, will blow up. A church with the Word, without the Spirit, will dry up. But a church with the Spirit, working through the Word, will grow up. And that's the kind of church we want to be. And that's what was happening in Samaria. Verse 9. But. And that's where we'll leave it this week.